Good morning. You doing well? It's good to be back in Oklahoma. One of my homes, I have at least three homes now, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and Cleveland, Tennessee. So it's good to be here at, at home when I'm not quite at home when I'm away from home. And I am starting to feel a part of sanctuary. That's maybe good news for one or two of you, frightening for about half of you. But I am starting to feel very much at home. When Pastor Ed called me to talk about speaking this weekend, I asked him, what should I talk about? And in his characteristic dash, he said, eh, God. (laughs) And I responded with, that's really not my expertise. Can you give me something a little more specific than that? To which my son said, Dad, talk about Star Wars. That's certainly not my expertise. So I'm going to go with the God conversation. If for some reason that doesn't go well, I may detour in the middle and, and try something like Star Wars. And for those of you who are, are really distressed about me becoming a part of this community, you ultimately have Colton to blame for this. Just want to make sure that everyone understands that Colton is, is the one to blame. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start there. But I need to, to kind of do two moves to set up for, before we read. The first is to put a kind of advisory label on what I'm about to say. I have a reverse Pentecost gift. You remember the story of Pentecost. The spirit falls on the apostles in the upper room or in the temple courts. They start to speak in tongues. And all of these people gathered from all over the world hear in their own native dialect the praise of God. It's a miracle of hearing. They're speaking. We don't know what they were speaking, but we know that everyone heard in their own language God's name being praised. I have the reverse gift. I speak in English, which I'm assuming is the dominant language for at least 75% of you in here, you, you know English, right? You know when someone is speaking in English, and yet there's going to be a point, I'm willing to bet, at some point in my sermon today, you're going to think that I have moved into tongues. Like, you're going to be like, what is he talking about? What is he saying? The last time I was here, I, I preached about Trinity, and I told you that it was basically a worthless sermon. I mean, there's no application to your life. You're going to think that about this one, no matter what you thought about the last one, at least at a certain point. But don't run out, please, in the middle I mean, if you get an emergency or something, sure. But, I mean, don't run out out of fear of what I'm saying because I think if you stay all the way to the end, you'll see that it may be crazier than you thought, but it's not crazy in the way that you're thinking at the time, right? That's all I can promise. Like, it's not crazy in the way it sounds like what I'm saying. So that's the first preface. The second preface is I need to confess a few things about my experience of church growing up. And this will become therapy. Our pastors here, this is their area of expertise, and so just let that kind of work itself out. The church I grew up in, and there were many wonderful things about it, many wonderful people encountered God there, but there were also things about that experience that were really caricatures. They were exaggerations. Let me give you some examples. The center of our Bible was not John 3.16. It was Deuteronomy 22.5. Puzzling. What does Deuteronomy 22.5 say? I'll quote it to you in King James because we were only allowed King James. In fact, as I I admitted in the first service this morning, there is a cassette tape out there somewhere of me as a seven-year-old preaching about why the King James Version is the only version that anyone should read. And that if you're not going to read the King James Version, you might as well be a Catholic priest or smoke cigarettes. Like those, in my seven-year-old mind, those were the moves that I made. That happened, right? So whatever you think about today's sermon, just know it's better than that. Like, I've come some way from that. So in 10 King James, Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, 
nor a man that which pertaineth unto a woman. For those who do are an abomination unto the Lord. Praise Jesus, right? (laughs) And I lie not, I lie not, I heard more sermons on that text than any other single text in the Bible. I've heard dozens of sermons about that passage of Scripture. Here's another story. I'll come back to that in a moment. But here's another example of the kind of exaggeration I'm talking about. I actually grew up in the liberal version of my very conservative tradition. We were called, we called ourselves free holiness. We were in no way free, in no way holy. That's how we identified ourselves, nonetheless. Free holiness people, right? And we were the liberal ones in that group because we let men wear sleeves that reach past their elbow. Obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously. One of the things is whenever we would buy short sleeve shirts, our women, the women, would have to sew sleeves that reach past the elbow. I loved this as a kid. No, I didn't. (laughs) Having sleeves sewn into my shirt because it had to reach past my elbow. But that was liberal because all the other churches in our group said you had to have sleeves at least to your wrist, right? So for us, it was scandalous that we let that much skin show, right? See, I told you this was therapy. I warned you up front that this is what this is going to be. Third thing, third example, is that we went to church a lot. I mean, a lot. We had Saturday night service, Sunday, and not where some people came on the Saturday night and some came to the Sunday morning. No, all of us went to all of these services. We had no children's church, right? So everybody from the newborn babe to the, and most, you know, the average age of our church was probably 88, right, anyway. (laughs) But everybody came to all of these services. So Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Once a month, we had a Friday night service as well. And then in the spring and in the fall, we had revivals, we called them, which were blocks, two-week blocks of services, 14 consecutive days of services, And we never were actually only going to meet for 14 days because we were Pentecostals, which meant if you only went with the program, God didn't act. So you knew when the revival started, we're going at least 15 days, like at least 15, so we can say that God did something, right? All of the year, except for the week preceding those revivals, so, you know, roughly 48 weeks out of the year, 46 weeks out of the year, we were told, don't associate with ungodly people. Don't have unsafe friends. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't cuss, and don't even come near anyone who was near anyone who cussed once, right? Like that kind of remove. So don't, don't just not have ungodly friends, but don't have friends who have ungodly friends. Like severe removal from anything that might contaminate you, right? So to quote King James again, evil communications corrupt good manners. So you, you keep your distance from these ungodly people, except in those one week of services leading up to the revival, where without explanation, our pastor would say, now we've got revival coming up in a week. Invite all of your unsaved friends so they can meet Jesus. And it didn't dawn on any of us. I mean, I was in undergraduate school before it, before it hit me. Wait a minute. Like, how was I going to have any, un- we wondered why that never happened. <laughs> it it was, wasn't that the devil was working against us or anything like that. We, re- we had worked really hard for 46 weeks to make sure none of those people knew us. Right? That's why we couldn't find any in that one week we had to bring them to church. All right, so that, that was part of my experience growing up. That's not all of it, but that was a, lar- a large part of it. And I actually think that that's an important kind of prelude for what we're going to see in this text. And as exaggerated as what that is, and believe me, I could keep going about testimony services and, yeah, I won't. 
Therapy's over. I'm going to stop with that. But, but leading into this text, as exaggerated as those mistakes were that my community made, I actually think we're going to see a very similar thing happen with the Pharisees and how they engage Jesus. So let's look together in Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 10. Matthew 9, verse 10. And as he said at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners, by the way, sinners in this text is not a, is not a reference to people who are sinning. It's a technical term. It's a referral to all those who were Jews, but whose lifestyle, either because of their job or their marriage, their lifestyle made them ceremonially unclean. So sinners here is a technical term for a group of people who, because they serve in the military or they work in the food industry or because marriage connections, they live in a perpetual state of law-breaking. These tax collectors and these sinners are sitting down to table with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees see this. And they say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Only the sick do. And then he tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. So you have to see this. Jesus is is gathered to him at this table. Tax collectors and sinners. People who are living day-to-day, in constant state of law-breaking. And the Pharisees, who are concerned about law-breaking, see this and speak to it. And they say to Jesus, say to the disciples, why is he doing this? Doesn't he know what Scripture says? Because after all, that's exactly where they've gotten this idea. That Jesus and his disciples, as faithful Jews, as covenant-keeping Jews, should not eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because to eat with them is to defile the covenant. It is to blur the boundary between what it means to be faithful to God and what it means to be unfaithful. And the Pharisees see this. And Jesus' response to them is to say, I'm a physician. I'm a physician. And only the sick need that kind of care. If you want to understand what I'm about, go and learn what this means. And he directs them back to a text of Scripture, actually, that's found in the prophet Hosea. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. So as if Jesus says to them, you won't understand my agenda. You won't understand what it is I'm up to until you go back and read the scripture again. You've read the scripture and you think you understand what's happening. But you need to go back and read again. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now jump a scene, chapter 12, Matthew 12, verse 1. We have a very similar scene with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, so it's almost comical. It's as if the Pharisees are just tailing Jesus and his crew everywhere they go, like just watching for what he's going to do wrong, right? You've met people like this, right? I mean, they're just, they're always watching for, in fact, I think there's a way of saying that at the end of the day, there really are kind of two kinds of people. There are the people who are looking for Jesus, and then there are the people who are looking at the rest of us who are looking for Jesus, right? And the Pharisees belong to that second group. They're just watching Jesus and his disciples. And this time, when the disciples break the law, they speak to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're breaking scripture. 
He said to them, have you not read? So once again, he turns their attention back to the scriptures. They think they understand the scriptures, and he keeps saying to them, wait a minute, have you read the scriptures? Have you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for his companions. It was lawful only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest and the temple break the Sabbath and yet remain guiltless? I tell you, and this is maybe the most important line of this exchange, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you had really gone and read the scriptures in the way that I instructed you to read, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now pause over that word guiltless. Who is he describing as guiltless? The guilty ones. The ones who broke the law. He's now calling guiltless the very ones they're calling guilty. Because Jesus and the Pharisees are operating with two different standards of guilt. They're both using the same scripture, but they have two different standards of guilt. And here's what Jesus exposes for them. And he says, in conclusion, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus exposes here is that the Pharisees fundamentally misunderstand two things. The kind of community God wants and how to use scripture to make the kind of community God wants possible. They have a vision of community, and they use scripture to make that kind of community possible. It just isn't the kind of community God has called for. And therefore, they abuse scripture while they are attempting to use scripture, and they make a community in their own image rather than in God's image. And in doing that, they fail to know God rightly, and they fail to make God known rightly. And this is where what happened with the Pharisees and what happened with the church I grew up in start to overlap. Ways in which we became concerned about having a certain kind of community that was actually born out of our own desires. It wasn't born out of what God wants for a community. It was what we wanted for a community. And so when we read scripture, it quickly degenerated into legal argument. I told you we, we read Deuteronomy 22.5 almost every sermon. And it's one of those texts that once you make the assumption that God has told us something here about how women should dress and how men should dress, it actually gets harder and harder to understand the more you think about it. Because how do you know what pertaineth unto a man? Think about it. And so all the, I told you, I heard dozens of sermons on How do you preach dozens of sermons on a text like that? Because everyone had a different interpretation of what did and did not pertaineth unto a man or a woman. So the, everyone agreed women couldn't wear pants that looked like men's pants. But no one could agree about what that actually meant. Like how masculine did the woman's pants have to be that where they crossed that line from women's pants to men's pants? Like was it stitching? Was it fit? Was it dye? Was it how many jewels were? I mean, seriously, these were the sermons I heard. Like when do you know you've crossed over from feminine pants to masculine pants? And vice versa. Right? I mean, as a man, I mean, how do you know where your, I mean, some of you guys need to hear this. Your pants are getting kind of feminine, right? Wait a minute. No, no, we're not going to be legalists. But once you make the move, right, that scripture is like that, that scripture functions like that, legalism is inevitable. And that, it's easy to laugh at those guys. I mean, they're talking about pertaineth unto a man, right? But these Pharisees are really in a, a much less 
exaggerated form of the same problem. They've read the text of scripture and they have a vision of community and they're working to keep that vision of community. And yet Jesus says, you fundamentally missed the point. This is not the community that God wants and this is not how scripture is supposed to be used. And so he keeps telling them, go back and read again. Go back and read again. You don't understand yet. And here's the ugly part. When we build visions of community, when these Pharisees built this vision of community, they not only kept away the people who needed to come to Jesus, they used it to hide their own sins. I want you to hear this. The kind of community we make out of our own spirit is the kind of community that keeps certain people at bay so we can keep our own sins from being known. Jesus does this twice in the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. One is he says to the Pharisees, you keep others from coming into the kingdom, but in fact, you give your money to the temple. You claim that it's going to be given to the temple so you don't have to care for your mother and father in their old age. And that is a reading of scripture, he says, that makes void the word of God. And then in Matthew 19, the same thing, they come to him and they are asking about the laws of divorce. And he says, Moses gave you those laws because your hearts are hard. That's not what God intended in the beginning. And what he exposes in both places in terms of how they cared for their parents and how they saw marriage is he says, listen, you've invented a way of reading scripture and building a kind of community that ultimately is about you hiding your own sins. This is about constructing a community not only that keeps those people at bay, but actually keeps God at bay from you. Keeps God from getting to your heart and exposing what's in you and transforming you into the image of Christ. And this is what Jesus keeps showing up. And what he tells them over and over again is, I'm the revealer of God. In John chapter 5, we have a very similar exchange. Jesus is performing a miracle. People accuse him of breaking the law. And this is what he says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. But I am the life. And scriptures testify of me. But you will not come to me that I might give you life. So consistently, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And these scriptures exist to bring people to me. And this is why he can say of those tax collectors and sinners, they're guiltless because scripture did what it was supposed to do. They're sitting at the table with Jesus. And that's all scripture was ever meant to do. That's what our community is meant to do. And if we get people to the table with Jesus, we've done what we've been called to do. And yet sometimes we have visions of community that actually keep those people from coming to the table with Jesus. And all the while keep Jesus from getting to the sin in our own hearts. And so Jesus is constantly trying to change the way they understand what kind of community God wants and how scripture functions to get there. We see this radical transformation in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you look in Philippians 3, we get Paul's testimony, his account of what his life was like before he met Jesus and what it was like after he met Jesus. And he tells us essentially that he was blameless. He says, concerning the law, I was blameless. And concerning persecution of the church, I had zeal. Now that word zeal is hugely important in Old Testament context because there's a story of a man named Phineas in Numbers, the book of Numbers. I grew up in a church that did flannel graph. Anybody else have flannel graph church? Okay, there was not a flannel graph for the story of Phineas, right? And you'll see why if you, if you, if you just stay with me for a moment. Israel commits this great sin in which the men of Israel are betting can I use that language? They're betting these <laughs> Gentile women. And one man in particular is doing the betting at the threshold of the tent of meeting. 
See, he's flamboyantly defying God's presence and the priestly order, and he takes this Gentile woman to the tent opening and begins to have his way with her. And Phineas leaves and goes to his tent and gets a javelin, the text says. See, no flannel graph, right? Comes back. Can you imagine a Sunday school teacher trying to talk through this story? I might have paid much more attention in Sunday school. But we were talking about Deuteronomy 22.5 anyway. We never got to Numbers 25. So he comes back with a javelin and throws it through both of them at once. Then picks them up, their corpses suspended on the spear, and carries them around the camp. Right? Flannelgraph that, right? <laughs> and here's what the text says in Numbers 25. Because when this sin is breaking out, a plague sweeps through the people. And Phineas, when he kills this man and woman... The Bible says, and because of his zeal, the plague was stopped. Psalm 106 picks up the story of Phineas and says, because of this zeal, God counted it to him as righteousness. Remember that language. Counted it to him as righteousness. This is why Paul was who Paul was before he met Jesus. Because he's reading the text of the Old Testament and he sees Phineas and he understands himself as called to that life. Why is he stoning Christians? Why is he seeking to imprison them? Why is he seeking to, to silence them? Because he sees these Christians as doing exactly what those Israelites did that Phineas stopped. They're blurring the boundary between the people of God and the pagans. They're violating the covenant. And Paul sees himself as finding his righteousness in putting a stop to this defilement of the covenant. And when he meets Jesus, it's not so much that his vision of God changes, although, of course, that happens. It's that his vision of the kind of community God wants changes. What happens on Damascus, on the Damascus Road, is not just that he sees God's heart. He sees that God's vision for community has always been that there be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That God has always meant that there be no distinction between slave or free. That there's always been in God's heart this intention to bring male and female, rich and poor, old and young together into one household and that he had always misunderstood what God's vision for community was. And this is why Paul shifts from talking about zeal and Phineas to talking about faith and Abraham. Because after that, when Paul wants to talk about what God does, he says God saw Abraham's faith and same language, counted that faith to him as righteousness. So in one way, what happens on the far side of the Damascus Road experience is that Paul realizes that what's needed is not zeal to keep Israel's bloodline pure. What is needed is faith in the God who does the impossible and who raises the dead and who makes possible the reuniting of those who've been estranged, the God who has always been working to make that kind of community possible and that righteousness is believing in that God. Now notice, he's just as biblical before Damascus as he was after. Paul doesn't become more biblical. He just starts to read the Bible believing that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and someone greater than the temple is here. Paul starts to recognize that something has happened. God has broken in in Jesus Christ and scripture is a witness to Jesus and that means all of this is fulfilled. So how does this apply to us? Because clearly you wouldn't be here if you were like the people I grew up with. I mean, no one woke up this morning, none of you woke up this morning and thought, well, this pertaineth too much to a man. I mean, you didn't have some kind of crisis about that. 
unless you're one of those Pharisees who like follows the rest of us around like to see what we're going to do. But for the most part, you guys aren't like that, right? I mean, you're not, not guilty of that kind of thing. And you're not guilty, I hope none of us are guilty, of being the kind of people who are holding at bay those who want to get to Jesus. I doubt any of us in here think of ourselves as legalists. And probably we're not in that exaggerated form. But I wonder if in a far more subtle way, there's still a sense in which we do have a vision of community that's not exactly what God wants. And that we still do use scripture to justify what we want from scripture, what we want from community, rather than what God is actually calling us to. And maybe we're much more careful about it. Maybe we don't say it in any way that's offensive. Maybe we're much more guarded with our words. But really in our heart, we still want to be around people who are like us, who see things the way we see things, who believe what we believe, who value what we value. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is, what if that's just not the kind of community God wants? And what if we, in much more subtle ways, are using Scripture to hide our own sins and to build our own kind of community rather than yielding to what God wants to do in community? The key, the key, is to learn to recognize that Scripture's purpose is to get people to the Lord of the Sabbath. And we have to learn to recognize when he's present. Let me show you this, this story, 2 Kings chapter 5. And on, their, on your way there, I am a theology professor, as was said, so you're going to have to indulge me for like two minutes. There was, six, early 1600s, there was this Reformation. We've all heard of the Protestant Reformation. Part of what happened in the Reformation is this new doctrine, these new doctrines of Scripture start to develop. And they start to develop for very good reason. They develop as ways of correcting corruption that have happened in the church. And these new ways of reading scripture are born as a way of trying to address problems in the church, mistakes that the church is making. And there are three basic claims that these doctrines want to make in various ways, but these basic points remain. The first is that scripture is a deposit of God's will. That whatever God wants to reveal about how we should live, he encodes it in scripture. He embeds it in scripture. The second is that God did it clearly. It's not hard to find out what God wants. So if you want to know what God thinks about marriage and divorce, there's a doctrine of that in scripture. If you want to know what God thinks about church order and whether or not we should have bishops or pastors and women pastors should be allowed to be bishops, there's a doctrine for that in scripture. Or if you want to talk about whether or not you should, be, you should have as many children as possible or if birth control is acceptable, there's a doctrine of that in scripture. And that it's clearly there in Scripture. And then the third move, and this is the decisive one, is that the individual is the primary reader of the text rather than the church. So without anybody intending to do anything disastrous, over time, we as Christians, Protestant Christians, started to develop this habit of thought, this something deep in our imagination, that if there's anything God wants me to know, he's told it to me in Scripture clearly, and I can read it on my own and discern what that is. But 500 years later, almost... It's pretty clear that the Bible isn't clear. How do you have 30 plus thousand Protestant denominations if the Bible is clear? Right? It's not clear. Because if it were clear, then when you read it and when I read it, we would see the same thing. But what happens is I read and something is clear to me and then you read it and say, that's not at all there. And you might be thinking about that, about how I'm reading this Matthew 9 text right now. Like, what, where, he's making this up. He's speaking in tongues. Right? Or Deuteronomy 22.5, right? They were certain that that's in the text. It's not in the text. 
but it is to them, right? Because once you've made that move that it's there clearly in the text and my reading is the one that really matters, then all of a sudden the whole point of the Christian life is for God to act in the individual. And whether or not I join a community is dependent upon whether or not you agree to the way God is working in my life. So instead of the community being basic and us being called to live in that community, I'm basic and you're called to circle around me. Especially if I'm in the role of teacher. The more authority within that community I'm given, the more that community has to shape itself around what I believe, what I see clearly in the text. And there's no way, once we have those habits of thought and feeling, there's no way to build the kind of community God wants. Because when anybody breaks from our reading of the text, now we're, they're violating God's word. Right? I was mocking somebody's tone there. That wasn't my voice. Right? I channeled someone right there. Not that I'm into witchcraft. This is getting away from me. Right? There's Bible against that. I know that. So, but the point is, once you've made that move, that the individual is basic, then everything gets judged from your perspective. And now instead of God trying to build a certain community that you're called to live into, you see all of God's work is kind of starting with you. There's a story, one of my favorite stories, because it, it's so absurd, is this man who was raised in an Anglican, breaks from the Anglican, this was in the, the 1600s, late 1600s, he breaks from the Anglican church in England and becomes a part of the Puritans in England. But before long, they're not pure enough for him. So he leaves England and comes to the colonies with some other people who are unsatisfied with the Puritans' purity. And he comes here and he becomes a part of the American Puritan church. But before long, he's dissatisfied with the purity of these Puritans who were dissatisfied with the purity of the Puritans in England. Right? I'm going to stop doing that right there. That was the last time. So he breaks from the American Puritan church and founds a dissenting church here in the colonies. And before he died, he broke from that movement that he founded as a counter to the movement that he brought here to the colonies from England to pastor a church in which he was joined week to week by his wife and one man. And guess what? If he had lived like one week longer, like you, you know, like there was another church split coming. Like either his wife was going to run away with that man or he was going to run away with that man or something was going to happen, Right? It was inevitable. Like if he had lived long enough, that was somehow going to split, right? There's no, and we all know what that's like. We've all been around churches where that kind of divisiveness is at play. And what if the reason it's at play is that we're fundamentally misusing scripture because we still don't yet see the kind of community God wants? Let me show you how this works in 2 Kings 5. This is the story of Naaman. Plenty of flannel graphs for this story, right? Story of Naaman, enemy of Israel, conqueror of Israel who has leprosy. One of the slave girls whom he's captured from Israel tells him about the prophet in Israel who can heal him. He goes to Israel expecting God to heal him through the prophet's action. The prophet sends out the servant. Naaman is infuriated, says, I could have washed in cleaner rivers. Why did I come all the way down here just to have him send a servant out and then to tell me to go wash in a muddy river? Eventually, his servants talk him into doing it, you know. He goes down, he dips seven times in the Jordan, lots of wonderful flannel graphs about this, and he's healed. His skin becomes like that of a little boy. And we're going to pick up the story right there. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. 
He came, Naaman came, and stood before him, Elisha, and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But Elisha says, As the Lord lives whom I serve, I will accept nothing. Naaman urges him to accept the gift. He refuses. Then Naaman said, If not, then please let me take two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God except the Lord. Now that's where the flannel graph stops. And we take up the penny offering and we go back to adult church. But that's not where the story stops. And I want you to see what happens. But, and this is still Naaman talking to Elisha. But may the Lord forgive your servant on one count. When my master, back home in Assyria, when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Ramon, and just to make sure Elisha didn't mishear him, he says it again. When I do bow down in the house of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. Now, wait a minute. If there's any command in Scripture that's clear, it's don't worship other gods. Have no other gods before me. Idolatry is strictly, clearly, always forbidden. And here's a man, an enemy of Israel, who now has been restored to health so he can go on being the conqueror of Israel, who's come here and been healed by this God, and yet says, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to kneel, and he says three times to the prophet, in the house of Ramon, in the house of Ramon, in the house of Ramon, just to make sure the prophet understands, when I go back there, I'm going to be in that temple. And Elisha says, not, haven't you read the Ten Commandments? He says, go in peace. Now, if this doesn't cause a little bit of discomfort for you, I don't think you're paying attention. Like, what is happening? But here's, here's the key. Elisha recognizes that the spirit that's at work in Naaman now is greater than whatever darkness is at work in that temple. And he recognizes that something greater than the temple is here. And that means that the text has done its job. Naaman is no longer an idolater. And he may kneel in that idol temple, but he doesn't have an idol in his heart anymore. And because of that, he's going to go in. And when he's kneeling there beside his master, the light that is in him is going to break onto the darkness that's around him. And the life that is at work in him is going to overcome the death that surrounds him. And he understands, I can't shut that down. I can't stop that. Because here's the thing. It would have been idolatry for Elisha to stop it. The temptation was for Elisha to idolatrize his reading of the text. To make an idol of the God he wanted. But this isn't the God I want. He is God. He wants me. He makes me. I don't make him. And when he's at work... I don't get to shut that down in the name of building the kind of community I want or protecting the kind of community that I want. So we're not legalists in the way that the Pharisees were. But I wonder, do I really recognize when God's at work in people like Naaman? Do I really see when someone greater than the temple is at work, even in moments like these? Here's what I want to end with. You remember what Jesus told the the Pharisees to do? He said, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. 
Here's what he wanted them to hear. That what God has always intended was not a people who did sacrifice, but a people who became sacrifices. What does Paul say in Romans 12? Brethren, above all, I want you to be renewed, transformed in your minds, and to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. God never meant us to be a people who do sacrifice. He meant us to become people who are sacrifices in the way that Jesus is a sacrifice. And that includes sacrificing our vision of community. Sacrificing what we want to have in a community for the sake of being the kind of people who are able to live in community that Christ is building. And the only way to become sacrifice is to recognize when someone greater than the temple is at work in people who seem to be breaking the law. Now I understand there are parts of us that rebel against that. But here's what I want you to hear, my last word. If God is who we say he is, then greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if we really want to confront sin in our life and in the world, the only way to do that is to bring it in contact with the consuming fire of this God's love. And when they're in the presence of Jesus, when tax collectors and sinners sit down at this table with this Jesus, they go away differently. All we have to do is get the woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus' feet. If we had stoned that woman, she would have died an adulteress. The law would have been satisfied. She would have died an adulteress. But when Jesus speaks... He calls life from death and light from darkness and being from non-being. He calls her to life and she walked away from there back to her relationships, back to that man who had sinned with her, back to her children, back to her friends, a woman who has life at work in her. She walks out of there saturated with the love of God and don't you think that that did more than just save her from death? It brought life into every corner of her life. What else are we wanting? but to be that kind of people. Let me pray for you. God, thank you that you've called us, that you've claimed us, that you put your hand on us to make us a certain kind of people. God, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, of course, we want to remain faithful. We want to submit to your truth. But God, don't let us, in the name of submitting to your truth, invent our own vision of community that hides our sins and keeps others at bay. God, help us to recognize when you're present in people's life and to trust that greater is your work in us and in them than anything the enemy can bring about. We pray this with Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.